Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, March the 15th. My name is Alan Stein. I'm Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Oxford and also a consultant in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Hi, I'm Brenda Kelly. I'm a consultant in fetal medicine and obstetrics at um, Oxford. I'm also a parent with a life-threatening condition, namely stage 3 breast cancer, which was diagnosed in May 2018, and I have two children. Hi, my name is Ruth Bland. I'm a consultant in general paediatrics at the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow, Scotland, and I hold honorary affiliations at Glasgow University and the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Thank you all very much indeed for joining the Lancet podcast. We're here to discuss two papers that you've published, two reviews in a series, which is about communicating with children concerning life-threatening conditions, both in, in children themselves and also in their parents. This is obviously a fascinating but difficult, complicated area, and it's really wonderful that with your experiences, as we're going to find out, we're going to draw together a discussion here, which I think lends itself so much to this topic, to, to have a podcast on it. So let's start with some basics, and I think, Alan, you're going to take this, this question first. What prompted you to, to write this series? And your series is effectively drawing out these guidelines that you're trying to develop in this area, presumably because it's such a difficult area for parents, children, and for healthcare professionals. I guess we start with one of the most difficult and daunting tasks that any healthcare professional has to undertake is to tell a child that they have a life-threatening illness or that their parent has a life-threatening illness. In fact, this is not as uncommon as people might think because life-threatening illnesses and conditions are relatively common, but especially probably in low-middle-income countries. Uh, we talk about cancer. Uh, in the UK particularly, and high-income countries, and probably HIV and cancers in low-income countries are perhaps the, the more common ones that we're thinking about. But every day and every hour, someone is having to face this issue. Most importantly, it really matters, and it matters because children are like to be helped by understanding what is happening to them, and that improves their cooperation with procedures and their adherence to treatment. In the longer term, this awareness will help families and children empower themselves to try and seek the treatment that they need. It's also, we know when a parent has an illness, children have a sense of what's going on and they need to be given some information which helps them understand and make sense of the world around them instead of having to struggle on with their own fears and concerns. From a healthcare professional's point of view, Almost all healthcare professionals work in very busy situations with enormous amount of pressure. And this is a very emotionally difficult and challenging and can be draining experience. So what's really needed is some guidelines, as with any other medical procedure or, or, or condition, which actually takes you step by step through the central issues and essential points that need to be covered. And that all makes it much more feasible. But in this situation, there's actually very little. There are a few things, but very little to guide healthcare professionals across different contexts that will actually allow them to manage the situation easily. So that's where we began, and that's why we felt this was important to start. And what this really comprised was a fairly extensive and wide-ranging literature review across all the conditions we could cover, where which might be considered to be life-threatening. And then once we had that evidence, we held a two-day workshop of experts from the UK and from internationally, including low middle income countries, to 
think about those guidelines and to bring their own expertise to bear to try and draw up the guidelines together with the based on the evidence uh, that, that we've culled from the literature. Presumably one absolutely critically important uh, facet of, 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 of this topic is of course we're, we're talking about communicating with children and children have very different abilities and, and cognitive processes, emotional developmental um, function at different ages. So fundamental to this whole conversation is the fact that we have to take account of children's relative developmental abilities to, to, to deal with what we're talking about here. That's absolutely correct. So there's a lot of work that has been done in this area to try and outline what children understand, what they might be feeling in different ages, and an awareness not of every detail, but of essentially what the key stages are, is enormously important in guiding healthcare professionals when talking to parents and talking to children. So just as an example, a child of six or seven years old will understand the concept of death, but they're also at that stage starting to develop what we might call as a conscience and a sense of responsibility. And then at the same time, they also develop what we might call the term sometimes used as magical thinking. In other words, what they feel is that their thoughts and feelings might influence or can have effects on events. So, for example, we all, I suppose, are slightly superstitious. And if we get angry with somebody or have a fight, an argument with somebody, and then perhaps with a parent, and then in turn, it turns out that two weeks later, they're suffering from a serious illness or they go and have a car crash. Deep down, we might feel, oh, did, did that argument or did that um, or did the unpleasant things I said cause it? But we know that's not really true. But for six and seven year olds, they may well feel that's true. So if they don't have a good concept and, and un, if they're not told about what's happening, they may well be left with the feeling, and we know that often happens, that they are responsible for what's happening. So very clear, simple and concrete language for a child of that age is important to explain exactly what's happened and to be aware rather than being left in the dark and to and to be struggling with their worries. If you go a bit younger, three to four year olds, if one's talking about death, they won't have a full understanding of the irreversibility of death. In other words, they understand that somebody has left and is not around anymore, but there will be some expectation that the person will be coming back. And often in very, very difficult circumstances, we might try and reassure ch children, well, the per if you're very disrespectful, don't worry, the person will come back. That's actually incredibly problematic for a child. They need clear explanations that the person won't be coming back and they shouldn't expect that. Otherwise, there eventually comes a point where they actually realize what's happened. The person is gone forever, but they've had that, ex that hope for all those months and years that the person would be back in their lives. So those are two very simple explanations, simple examples of the kind of things that we need to think about when talking to children or talking to parents about their kids. Presumably when we're talking about life-threatening conditions among children, of course they can happen anywhere, but especially there must be an impact in low-income and middle-income settings. Ruth, I think you'd like to, to give us some perspective on that. Yes, so whilst cancer is important, obviously, throughout the world, we've chosen in our papers to focus on HIV um, in the low middle income countries. And in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, up to 40% of pregnant women are HIV positive. And so children, even young children, are exposed to HIV and sometimes death from you know, a very young age. 
Now, obviously, with the rollout of treatment, fortunately, fewer children are now infected and at birth with HIV, and parents are now living longer to, to care for their children, you know, often into um, teenage years and adulthood now. But, of course, this brings with it different challenges, and one of these is how parents explain to their children or go about talking to their children about the parents' HIV diagnosis. Mothers in, in South Africa would share with us that they were really worried about the effect that it would have on their children if they shared their own diagnosis. And they also shared that they just dreaded questions such as, what if the child asked me about death? And what if the child asked me about how I got HIV? And they you know, were really worried about how to initiate these conversations and how to field these questions. And we talk in the papers about some interventions that, that have taken, that have been implemented to try and empower parents to be in a position to start to share their diagnosis with children of all ages. And um, one of the interventions we talk about is one of our own interventions called the Amagugu intervention which was for six to 10-year-old children, so primary school age children. And the word amagugu in Zulu means treasure. And it was to try and capture this idea of the, the kind of value and the worth and the importance of, of children to families and, and to society. In the amagugu intervention, lay counsellors worked with the mothers to try and prepare them for disclosure if and when they wanted to. It's a structured program and the mothers, I think, really enjoyed having some structure um, around how to go about disclosure. I guess importantly the intervention had two important facets. The first was a session just with the mother and the counsellor to help her emotionally process her diagnosis and to talk freely about her concerns and her worries and her fears. And then there was, as well as the structured activities that mothers were, were offered to work with their children, they had a session where they could rehearse some of the questions they thought their children might ask them and to practice kind of answers that they might give. And certainly in a, when this was trialed in a, um, a randomized controlled trial, there were significantly higher rates of disclosure in the intervention group than in the standard of care. It was interesting that actually in the Amagugu intervention, a third of the, quest, a third of the children, um, when they were disclosed to, did ask questions about, about death to their parents. And Brenda, and you have personal experience here, when it comes to assessing what children and adolescents want in terms of communication when they have a parent with a life-threatening condition, how important is it that we hear directly from children about their information and communication needs rather than assuming that we know what they are? I think it's incredibly important and one of the strengths of the paper, particularly my parental life-threatening condition, was that we've covered the children's preferences. As Alan has already alluded to, children have a clear sense of something going on and that certainly was one of the findings from the review um, and that any delay I think in communicating with children just heightens that anxiety. One of the findings from the review was that children value a direct and honest approach and that ideally it should be the parents that are discussing that um, with the children as early as possible because the parents are who the children will trust to impart the information. The other element that is very much come out from the review is that 
what children desire is honest information and truthful information, however difficult that might be for the parent in that situation to speak to it, and that the children at different ages will require a slightly different approach, and that the language should be tailored to that. You know, so whether regardless of the age of the child or adolescent, the, the language should be clear and simple and avoiding jargon. But I also think there's an element of allowing the children to work with their own language. They may not feel comfortable with some of the words that have been used, and they may want to use different words. And the other thing, really, that what was coming out from the review is the, the preference of the children around what, what support they have after that point, um, whether it's in the case of an older child uh, or an adolescent, a sort of peer-to-peer -peer support, whether that's online or with a, an independent third party. And it's about supporting the parents in trying to meet the preferences of, of the children. In addition to you know my feeling of that I was deceiving my children by not telling them, I had to be mindful that of you know what we know that if we don't have these difficult conversations with children, that it can actually adversely impact on their longer term adjustment to the parental illness and also their longer term emotional well-being as well. So we, you know we know from the review that children who aren't told in a timely manner later describe feelings of betrayal on their parents' behalf when they do find out the diagnosis or if the parent then dies without the child knowing exactly what was going on. Ruth, what's happening next in terms of research for the ongoing development of these guidelines? Because clearly your work is, is taking us so far, but it needs to be sustained, doesn't it? So I think one of the next steps is probably around implementation of, of the guidelines. And I think probably we need qualitative research about what are the barriers to implementation and how can we reduce these barriers. And I guess we need to think broadly about um, who's having these conversations with children and parents and therefore, um, you know, who should be receiving support and training to do this. Because I, I guess this isn't limited to just the oncology consultant or the HIV specialist. People like nurses and counsellors have an enormously important role in supporting children and families. People like the family's GP actually are in a, a unique position of knowing the family, understanding something about the family relationships, and they're likely to be seeing children um, of, of families um, in their surgery um, and might well have the opportunity to initiate conversations about what the child knows, what they understand. Um, so I guess it's about implementation of the guidelines, qualitative research about how we do that best and what are the barriers to implementation. And finally, I think considering how to improve our training around these issues, including training materials, and there are materials out there, um, but what, what, are the, what are the best materials we can use to, to roll out training, um, including training of medical students, so that people are exposed to these issues very early on in their medical careers, I think is also important. And Alan, if I can bring you back in here just to, to, to follow on from that. It's so easy to forget how stressful this could be, obviously for everyone that's concerned, but for, for the healthcare professionals, whether it's GPs, surgeons, nurses, there's a huge issue here to do about character, to do about training, as Ruth has just said. What qualities should we be looking at here? And what happens, just imagine the scenario, if a healthcare practitioner feels emotional or wants to cry because they're passing on bad news. What kind of guidance is there around that situation? I think the key issue is that people vary substantially 
in the way they manage different things in all walks of life. But here, the key issue that all of us who go into the caring or healthcare professional want to help patients and help people. And I think that's the, the starting point. And the reason we have um, guidelines, we need guidelines, is because it isn't just left to the personal, special personality characteristics of an individual, but can help anybody who wants to help their patients follow through in a step-by-step -step way, beginning at the beginning, gently going through, starting with preparing yourself, using the names of your patients in a way that makes them feel individual, and ends up with making sure they feel that they'll be looked after and that whatever happens going forward, they're going to be cared for and that you, that somebody will always be there and available if possible for them and that their care will be offered. So I think there are simple things in the guidelines which allow everybody to do this. So I don't think you need special personal characteristics as a healthcare professional. Obviously, as I say, some will do it better than others, but we can all do it and we can all be trained to do it. So I think the flip side of that is what you've just mentioned and what Ruth also mentioned. It is stressful and can be very stressful. So having support um, in the healthcare system is very important. And I think what we're looking toward to some extent is some system change where this is recognized as very important and some level of support or debriefing at some point in the week or whatever that can be made uh, available is thought about and put in place by healthcare systems. Obviously, in some healthcare systems where they're dealing with large numbers of, of patients and there are fewer resources, they'll be much more difficult. But I think everywhere can do something and that can make an enormous difference. You mentioned the issue of emotionality, our experience and the feedback we've had from families that even if a, a doctor or healthcare professional cries, the response of parents is, well, they show, that show they really cared. They obviously tried everything they could to help and it just meant so much to them as it did to us. So I don't think that's an, that in itself an issue. Obviously, at different stages in all of our lives, we go through our own difficulties, our own separations, or even our own bereavements, and that can affect the way you do it. And the important thing is if some support available, some consultation available, to talk to somebody about that. And there are quite a lot of resources already, not all that well publicized, that, that are available, but even still, again, healthcare systems need to think about and have, put, have that put in place. Because if we have it as standard at, to some level, that will make an enormous difference. Thank you, Alan. Brenda, can I can I bring you in? How did you find the role of the of, of the healthcare professionals? Just paint a picture based on your personal experience, if you would. Yeah, I was fortunate. My healthcare, my health professional team are exceptional. What I would say is that the way in which they approached breaking bad news to me was exemplary. But the anguish that I felt on hearing the news wasn't so much, and I remember this very clearly, it wasn't so much about the sense of my own mortality, but more related to how on earth was I going to tell this news to my nine-year-old and six-year-old, knowing that it would just destroy their childhood and that their lives would, would never be the same again after that. And yet, you know, with the anguish was also the knowledge that for every day that would pass between me hearing the news and them receiving it, it felt like a deception because 
you know, as I've already spoken to, my, my both my children had a clear sense that there was something very, very serious going on at home from the hushed conversations, the telephone being taken out of a room. Um, my six-year-old had even started talking about, you know, a, a family friend whose daughter had cancer but had come through it. And, and the way he was speaking about it is almost that like he wanted reassurance that, that, that that's what did happen. So even without ever mentioning cancer, both children had picked up something was wrong. And, and in much as my health professionals were, as I say, exemplary, at that point with my anguish and I was articulate and, you know, I don't know how I'm going to tell my children. The point where I was crying in the consultation was around my children. There was a sort of a silence and a, a sort of an, a, a nonverbal acknowledgement that this was a difficult situation. But the focus in that consultation, that first consultation around diagnosis, was very much around giving me the information and the focus on the person in front and the focus on my needs in terms of support me through the next steps of surgery and chemo and so forth. I do, you know, when I reflect back on that conversation, I, I can see that the, the health professionals in my care were, were themselves parents. And I, I wonder whether part of the difficulty and you know, we've talked about, you know, emotionality and consultation. I could see tears and eyes on their part because I wonder how much was them thinking, how might this feel if it was me having to tell my children this information? And so whilst I was signposted to um, an excellent booklet by one of the ch uh, cancer charities in the UK, and I was given a, a, a book to take away to perhaps use to discuss with my six-year-old. The information from the cancer charity was fairly generic. It gives some hints about how you might start the conversation, what you might say, but it wasn't specific to my six-year-old and my nine-year-old. Well-intentioned provision, but not... It was well-intentioned. Well-intentioned, but not detailed, not precise enough. Not detailed. And, 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 and the, this brings and us the, back to the, the need for, for more concrete guidelines, as, as we've been discussing. Absolutely. absolutely. And I think the, the key thing that people think about is that there's, you know, it takes time to have these conversations, and it's too difficult, and it's too uncomfortable. But, you know, even if you start in that initial conversation with, you know, tell me a little bit about your children, what are the names, how old are they, what do you think they understand so far, and then you can lead into a conversation that essentially evolves over that consultation and the next consultation using some of the evidence that we've determined in the review and and put forward in the in the guidelines and the framework. Thank you, Brenda, so much for talking um, so powerfully about your own um, personal situation. It's uh, really invaluable. Just very final comments, please. Uh, Ruth, final comments f from you, please, just about next steps and priorities. So I think one thing we haven't talked a lot about in this podcast is just support for the healthcare professionals themselves. Alan touched on it. But I do think this is tremendously important. You know, in disciplines such as psychology, there's built-in time for supervision where psychologists can have time to reflect and with peers. And I think very poor in the medical profession of having space and time to, to be able to reflect and receive support around the many emotionally draining consultations that, that people have on a daily basis. And so I do think we need to think how we can better support each other and our trainees and if we think there's an enormous pressure in the NHS at the moment you know it's even more difficult in resource limited settings you know where in one clinic there might be 60 to 100 HIV positive 
patients and two to three nurses or two to three counsellors. But I think unless we find better ways to support staff dealing with this, then more and more people will burn out or, as Brenda said, not, not want to have uncomfortable conversations because it's too, it's too draining for themselves. And final comment from you, Alan, with more details in the two papers, of course. I agree with everything that Ruth said. I think there are two issues. One is we need system change, if possible, both about making this standard, the importance of talking to children and enabling it, and also providing the support that's needed, as Ruth has described. It is also the case that these guidelines aren't the final word, and much work could still be done, especially around individual conditions. But the main thing is we have a generic set to start us with, and hopefully this is that good start. Thank you all very much, Alan, Ruth and Brenda. It has just been the most fascinating half an hour. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with all your work. The details, as they are at the moment, are published in the latest issue of The Lancet, dated March the 16th. Thank you all for joining us and good luck with all your future work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard.